It's another delightful opportunity that we've been given this Sunday afternoon to assemble in the name of the God of heaven and to do so with the appreciation of all of eternity that stands before us, our desire to live and to do what's perfect and right in His sight, and that includes coming together to offer the heartfelt worship that you and I would wish to direct in His, uh, in His way. You may notice on the slide on the wall to my left and right, we'll be continuing a series of lessons that we began last Sunday evening on the book of Esther. So let me invite you to turn the Old Testament to that book of Esther. Esther is the last, really, of the historical books of the Old Testament. It is followed by books of poetry and by that, the books of prophecy. But the book of Esther occupies a very interesting place in that it brings before us events after the Babylonian captivity, but yet not quite to the fullness of the days of Nehemiah, Malachi, and others. For that reason, we have devoted last Sunday evening to a consideration, at least an overview of the book, in which we took chapter by chapter, extracted a lesson or two from each one, and I hope that was meaningful, I hope it was a beneficial thing, because along the way we learned about interesting characters like Esther, Mordecai, and even some others. Tonight, there's a single individual that will occupy primarily our attention. It's Haman. Haman Part 2 is the title of our lesson. This introductory slide will be exceedingly brief, actually, because it merely ties on to that which we began last Sunday night. The book of Esther, as is true of all the other 38 Old Testament books, has within it many inspired lessons and many principles worthy of our consideration. And so it is that tonight we're going to lift out of the book really only one character and look at him in some detail. Now I confess he was a rather wicked man, a rascal as, as Brother Greg noted in reading Esther 7 verse 6. But nonetheless we can learn a great deal by noting his mistakes. And may you and I be wise enough not to make the same ones. It is with that in mind, let's begin by noting one of the initial considerations that we face in relation to Haman was this. He loved the praise of men. In Esther chapter 3, again, the scene is this. Remember, the king had signed an edict, a decree, and everybody was supposed to bow before Haman. Well, everybody did, except Mordecai. And at least it would seem for a small amount of time... Haman didn't know anything about it, but it was finally brought to his attention. Hey, look, Mordecai isn't bowing before you. What do you think about that? He became outraged. He became incensed in anger at the thought that in his place and that which he loved to receive, it was not being given him. We don't know how many was there. Maybe 10,000 people bowed before him, but one didn't, and he was mad about it. Haman loved the praise of men. That isn't the only time in the book that that idea surfaces. You may notice in chapter 6, verses 6 and following, it surfaces here in a different way. You may remember that on that occasion, remember, the king had by that point learned about the fact that Mordecai had never been honored for the word he had brought about the plot to, to kill the king. When he learned about that, he wanted to do honor to Mordecai, and Haman happened to be nearby. And you may recall that the king said, Haman, what should I do to the man I wish to honor? And Haman thought he was talking about himself. He thought he was talking about Haman, but he wasn't. 
Haman, you see, immediately assumed that he was going to receive the praise of men. But it wasn't to be. It is with that in mind, may I ask you to consider a question for you and me. Do you and I solely thrive on the praise of men? Do we consider it a vital and essential and necessary thing that others heap praise upon us? For if we do, we're treading dangerously thin ice. Jesus, in fact, made statements to the Pharisees along that line, didn't He, in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 1. Wasn't it true that there in the midst of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out, they love to have the praise of men. They love to pray standing on the corners of the street so that everybody could hear their eloquence and hear the fine prayer they could offer. And not only that, they devour widows' houses because they want those funds and those things which were of them. When it came to fasting, they would disfigure themselves so that everybody knew they were fasting. They wanted everybody to compliment them. They wanted everybody to heap praise on their apparent godliness. Jesus said, you know what? They have their reward. That's what the Lord said. They've got it now. It's not coming hereafter. Doesn't that remind us then that you and I too, if all that we're in the business for in life is just for others to compliment us and pat us on the back... We enjoy it when that happens, and we appreciate being able to utilize our talents in an humble and submissive way. But you'll notice there's a difference. If we're doing it simply to hear others congratulate us, our motivation is not whole. Our motivation isn't pure. Look at some of these verses. In Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul, as great a man as he was, he says, If I should be the servant of men, I am not the servant of Christ. That's strong, isn't it? That is so terribly strong, and yet how powerful it is. Later on, you and I might add to that James 4, verse 4. James, that grand half-brother of our Lord, wasn't it true that he said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so, lesson number one tonight has been this. Do you and I love so much the praise of men that we are willing to almost exclusively devote ourselves to the reception of it? For if so, we're not going to be right in the sight of God. How about lesson number two? What else about Haman might we learn? I've entitled this one, He Was Vengeful. In Esther 3 verse number 6, you might recall that what did Haman do when he did learn that Mordecai was not bowing before him? Well, you and I well remember what he did. He said on a course such that not only would he punish Mordecai, but he would punish the entire race of people of whom Mordecai was a part. It was on that occasion he brought into play the reality of that scheme to put all Jews to death. He wanted to kill every one of them. Haman was a vengeful man. He wanted to get even, and even then some. He wanted to not only do the evil and the wickedness to Mordecai to teach him that lesson, but to exterminate all of the ones of whom he was a part. Haman was vengeful. You might notice the following statement, which is a question really. Are you and I like that? 
Now, we may not go to the extreme that Haman did. We might not want to take somebody's actual life. But when someone treats us a bit ill, do we want to get even? Do we want to make sure that we, in fact, do something similar to them, at least somewhat like what they've done to us? If so, at least we're following a pattern like that of ancient Haman. Look at this verse in Romans 12, 19. The Apostle Paul, as he discussed this idea, to the church in Rome it was true that to them he said, Avenge not yourselves, for vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Isn't it true then that Paul ordered, commanded, if you please, that church in Rome, don't get even. God will take care of every bit of that on the day of judgment. Everyone will receive the things done in his body, whether it was good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Let God, who is perfect in judgment and who knows all the facts, let him take care of any vengeance that thus needs to be taken care of. One last thing might be Matthew 7 verse 12. Again, in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in rather direct order said, speaking about the nature of how the highest ethic really in all the New Testament, He said it like this, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets, doing unto others the way you wish that they would do unto you. It is true. Haman certainly didn't act that way. He wanted to exact the greatest of vengeance, not only taking this man Mordecai's life, but all the life of the Jews. As you and I complete that second lesson, thinking about the lesson we've learned about not being vengeful, isn't it true that sometimes that's much easier said than it is done? When someone stabs you in the back... When someone deliberately and purposefully acts in a way to take what is rightfully yours, there are times it can be challenging to uphold the love and the mercy of God. And yet you and I are called on, not as if we would in fact foolishly entrust all things to them, but to at least recognize we hope that they in fact would come to their senses and that we will not take retaliation because we're the servants of Jesus. Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Pray for those who despitefully use you. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. Surely that lesson is as needful and as pertinent today as it was back then. Lesson number three. In addition to these two, look at what else might be said about Haman. Aren't you impressed with the fact Haman really had no interest whatsoever in truth? I say that because of Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You might recall on that occasion again, Haman had discovered or been brought to the fact of his attention that Mordecai did not humble and bow before him. It was at that point that Haman, with no regard whatsoever for lives and for the truth behind them, deceived the king into putting into place this edict that led to this decree declaring all Jews worthy of death. And it didn't bother Haman in the slightest. He had no concern for the truth for which they stood and the nature of what Mordecai stood for. I might suggest when any person is unconcerned about truth, that person has veered very far from the pathway of righteousness. 
Let's look at some of these verses. In Psalm 51, verse 6, David said, God desires truth in the inward parts. That's every one of us. He wants us to be individuals motivated by and those who love the truth. He wants individuals who, in fact, are so desirous and interested in it that that is the most important thing. To that passage in Psalm, in Proverbs 23, 23, you and I come face to face with an Old Testament commandment. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The inspired writer of old thus decreed, buy truth and never ever sell it. You and I should be people whose lives are an open testimony to truth. Those who uphold and love it, not only, of course, in the written Word of God, but every attribute of truth in our life. We ought to always tell the truth. We ought to be those who, in fact, encourage it in the lives of others. We ought never to be those who deceive. Those who purposefully and with deliberation seek to, in fact, cover over or stretch the truth. Have you ever heard that expression? The truth cannot be stretched. All that does is ruin it. All that does is pervert it. Let's add another verse in Proverbs 12, 19. The lips of the righteous are those who love the truth, but isn't it true that happens forever? But the verse goes on to say that those who aren't interested therein, they shall ultimately fall. Oh, what a great thing it is to contemplate the truth. That next statement then reads like this. Have you ever known someone who, and afterward the truth came out, and they were in the business of merely putting on a facade just to look good? They would shade things in their direction. They would purposefully deceive whatever it was to make themselves look good. May I say, they're following in the footsteps of Haman, if that's the way that they are. They aren't concerned about the truth. They're only concerned about appearances. You and I are admonished in the Word of God to do better than that. For John 8, 44 says, The devil is the one who is behind that kind of activity. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he's a liar as well. Lesson number four asks us to think something else about Haman. Not only are these other things worthy of consideration, notice this one. In fact, this one rides rather closely the one we just noted. But isn't it true that Haman had no concern or care for others. Here were literally thousands of Jews who were going to be put to death as a result of his efforts, and he was unconcerned. He didn't care. You'll notice in chapter 5, verse 9, when the message came true, he gave the order, Build the gallows. He wanted to see Mordecai put to death as speedily and as swiftly as possible. I suppose by now we're gaining a rather impression that Haman was a rather dark creature. There were many things about his character that we would never wish to imitate. Let's develop this point a little bit more carefully. May you and I, in the midst of a rotten culture as we so often live, may we never allow our soul to become desensitized. And by that I mean questions such as, when others suffer misfortune, when injustices prevail, does it bother you or me? 
Now, I realize it more than likely does when it's us. That's the one that's the victim. But what about when it's someone close to us? Or what about when it's a neighbor? Do injustices bother us? That's one of the things we must never lose sight of. That's why our elected officials are so important. We need individuals in legislatures, in the executive branches of government, in the judicial branches of government who understand the character and necessity of concern for the well-being of others. Sometimes that's absent. And sometimes the laws of the land reflect it. Maybe it's fair to say... In James 1.27, the inspired writer put it like this, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now notice, here were individuals genuinely in need, widows, orphans, those who in fact had been victims perhaps of various and sundry things, but at the very least they were needy. They weren't just claiming it. And yet, God's people would always be willing to attempt to help individuals like that. What about that passage in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31? Isn't it interesting that if when that picture of the day of judgment is presented, the Lord gave an emphasis, at least on that occasion, to those who had been the givers, to those in need. Haman did not do that. He was interested in himself, and you might recall how thrilled he appeared to have been when, after he thought that Haman, or rather that Mordecai was going to be killed, he went to enjoy a nice supper with his wife. He didn't care anything about Mordecai other than the fact he would be slain. Those kind of matters touch us with our Lord, doesn't it? Jesus sure had compassion, didn't he? Do you remember in Mark chapter 6 when that large group was gathered about him? They had been with him all day and they had nothing to eat and the Lord would not send them away because he had compassion on them for fear they'd faint in the way. Jesus concerned, was concerned about their well-being. You and I, with an interesting consideration, would no doubt feel the same. What about lesson number five? What else might be said about Haman? Haman was an impatient man. And you and I have got to be a bit mindful and very cautious to not allow impatience to reach an ugly head. Let's study it like this. In Esther 5 verse 14, we have a picture again of Haman with the reality and the circumstances surrounding the decree concerning the death of Mordecai. He was thrilled and couldn't wait for that event to happen. You might recall on another occasion in the book, he was so excited about the appreciation of having that meal with the king and the queen. And one the next day again, an element of impatience appears to have been a description of his way. To that impatience, let's consider this. Where do you and I fit in this? Are you and I too impatient? I ask that for the following reason. We understand the need to be busily doing the Lord's work, but one can go too far. Are we willing to wait on the Lord? I put in those words because the Bible does. In Psalm 27, verse 14, we are given the direct commandment, Wait on the Lord, and again I say wait. To that we might add the circumstances of Psalm 37. 
in that beautiful chapter, one more time, the commandment, wait on the Lord. Those things are brought before us so that we might consider it like this. There are activities and there are movements, and on occasion we pray to God for a certain event to happen, and we must understand that on God's timetable and in accordance to His will, the fullness attached to it shall come to pass. Now that being said, our impatience can sometimes get in the way. Don't you and I think about Abraham and Sarah? They had already been told, the son of promise will come through you. And yet, as the years passed, Sarah couldn't wait. Going unto Hagar, would you, Abraham? Maybe the child born to you and her will be the son of promise. She couldn't wait. And Abraham couldn't either. They lived to regret that decision. May I say, the reality of Ishmael is a constant reminder that you and I should wait on the Lord. Look at some of these additional verses. In Proverbs 20, verse 22, another reminder that those who are hasty are those who often veer into error. Or another one, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, the necessity to be mindful, always of waiting and patient in regard to the things of God. How about another one? Galatians 6 verse 9. Have you thought about this one in light of this teaching? On that occasion, didn't Paul say, We shall reap in due season if we faint not. Did you note that phrase, in due season? God didn't promise we'll reap tonight, tomorrow, or the next day, but it will be in due season if we'll be faithful. Perhaps one final one. That pair of passages in the Revelation remind us one more time that those precious teachings there, sometimes touching the Roman Empire, and they were too impatient. Surely, you and I can learn a valiant lesson about proper patience because Haman didn't have it. What about lesson number six? Haman pouted. You remember what happened, do you not? In Esther 6, verse number 12, when he thought he was going to be the one honored before the city, and in fact it turned out Mordecai was the one who was ridden on the animal. When that particular event finished, the text says Haman went back home and covered his head. He pouted. He pouted. There's a grand lesson in that for you and me as Christians, isn't there? There's no room in the Christian life for pouting. Because he didn't get his way and because he didn't have things work out the way he wanted, he pouted about it. Does that characterize me? When I don't get my way on every issue, on every item, do I become enraged with pout? Do I simply hang my head and my countenance falls? That's what Haman did. Notice verses like Acts 15 verse 36. It didn't work out the way that Barnabas or Paul thought it would either. After finishing the first missionary journey, and remember John Mark had been an accompanier on that one, but he left at Pamphylia. And when plans were in order to be made for that second missionary journey, there was a bit of a discussion, a contention between Barnabas and Paul. Either one of them could have pouted. Paul could have pouted because, again, 
John Mark was going to end up going if Barnabas got his way. Barnabas could have pouted because John Mark wasn't going to go if Paul had his way, and neither one of them pouted. Rather, they each chose additional companions, and they did two missionary journeys instead of one. Isn't that a grand solution? What about another example in Acts 9, 16? Here, right after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we notice that that congregation there in Jerusalem, they might have been in such a position that due to their resistance to him, he might have pouted. Is this what Christianity is all about? But he didn't. Thankfully, he didn't. In verse number 20, he began to preach the very message that he had then received. May I suggest one final example, Philippians 1.29. As Paul addressed the church in Philippi, wasn't it true that to them, he admonished them to understand that they would be called to suffer, but they ought not be powders about it. Now that characterizes you and me as well. We've got too much work to do in the kingdom of Christ to pout. There's too much that needs to be accomplished to pout. If we pout, that means we're looking too selfishly upon these things that weren't that important. As long as the work of the Lord is done, and as long as our mentality toward salvation is right, there isn't any time to pout. So Haman teaches us a lesson even in that. It brings us to the seventh and final lesson tonight. And lesson number seven is this, the way he died. We do have a picture in chapter 7 of the way this man died. He died rather dishonorably. He died again on those same gallows that he had made for Mordecai, but he was the one that died on them. And it is a rather dishonorable description of his death. The question, rather obviously for you and me, is this. Where do you and I fit into that discussion? Will my death be like Haman's? Or will it be like other ones that's very different? Surely you and I would not want to die dishonorably as God would see it. And that's the way Haman died. Remember, he died in an uncaring way. He died in a vengeful way. He died in a way that had no concern for others, and he died pouting. Look at this. In 2 Chronicles 21.20, Jehoram died. It too was a rather dishonorable thing. It says he died, but he wasn't even buried with his ancestors. How would you feel if you weren't invited to be buried in the family cemetery because the family wasn't pleased with the kind of life you had lived? Wouldn't that be a dishonorable and sad and very despicable way to die? That that's the way people remember your life? That's all that was remembered of Haman. But on the other hand, what about others like Abraham, who died in such a way that the text says he went to be with his fathers? Now that kind of thought leaves us the decision. Will you and I die honorably or dishonorably? And maybe no verse says it any better than Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Those who die in the Lord, what a blessed way to die. What an encouraging way to die and what a happy way to die. But to die out of the Lord is such a despicable thing. 
It's such a tragic thing. It's such a hurtful thing eternally. Seven things tonight we've learned about Haman. As you and I close this lesson, I'll just summarize them on this final slide because again, verse number 6 of Esther 7 says, The adversary is this wicked Haman. May you and I not be like him. And there at the bottom is a listing of the things tonight we in some brevity have considered about him. Though he lived a long time ago from our perspective, we certainly couldn't be guilty of some of the mistakes he made. Let's be wise. Let's live circumspectly. Let's live not making the foolish choices he made. Let's live in such a way that we can die with honor, that we can die saved, and we can look forward to going home to glory. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience whose life is much too familiar from a comparison to Haman's, won't you make some changes? It's not that, of course, the elders or myself are encouraging this of ourselves, but it's the Lord that's doing it. Wasn't it Peter on the day of Pentecost who, to those gathered on that occasion, said, Repent and be baptized. Those people needed to change something. Maybe you or I need to change something. If Haman looks all too familiar to us because we see him in the mirror, let's make some changes, okay? Let's try to turn that, our life around using the power of the Word. And in so doing, we will live honorably, justly, holily, righteously, and godly. We'll be much more like Mordecai than like Haman. But may I say, if, if all is well with your soul, and really you and I have learned a great deal from Haman, but we aren't like him, please continue to live with, with, with discreetness and continue to live with wisdom and continue to live in faithfulness. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone as an alien sinner, you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins and confess His name as the Messiah and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins. Upon so doing, you will rise to walk a new creature in Christ. If you have begun that walk, but you haven't been faithful... Come back to your first love. The church in, in Ephesus was told they needed to do this, and maybe you do too. May I say, we'd be happy to take note of your confession, your repentance, and pray to God on your behalf. If tonight we could be of help in any of these ways, we would urge you to come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.